Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Private Markets Made Human, the podcast from Hamilton Lane that brings information and perspective from our greatest asset, our people. We're thrilled to have you join us as we peel back some of the most relevant and complex topics that investors in the private markets face today. And as always, we promise you candid, firsthand, and oftentimes amusing insight powered by data. My first guest, Mario Giannini, needs little introduction. Having been at the helm of Hamilton Lane for almost three decades, he famously walks the halls listening and sharing stories with anyone he encounters. Under his leadership, the firm has been recognized as the best places to work for nine consecutive years, successfully went public in 2017, and today manages nearly $1 trillion in AUM. It was also once famously said by a reporter talking about the top private market investors of the decade, if you haven't spent time with Mario in Philadelphia, you probably aren't in private equity at all. So welcome to the show, Mario. Do you remember that quote? I think it sums it up nicely. Thank you. That was quite an introduction. <laughs> I don't do recognize re- that person. <laughs> do you remember that quote? Uh, no, I don't. No. I, I, th- no. I think it sums, it sums it up nicely to me. Well, thank you. <laughs> so for our listeners, I do want to set the stage for you. We're sitting in a recording studio around a 4 by 4 white table. We have a microphone on both ends, along with our executive producers. And we're in our brand new eco-friendly Conchahawken headquarters right outside of Philadelphia. Mario, this isn't how life at Hamilton Lane started for you, correct? Oh, God, no. Oh, God, no. It's funny because uh, Steve Schwartzman tells this story all the time uh, whenever we're together. And he talks about the first time he met me, which was almost three decades ago. In fact, it may have been three decades ago. And he said he came into Hamilton Lane, couldn't find where it was, even though he knew Philadelphia because it was, you know, like the fourth floor of some nondescript building. And he walked into a room with a table probably about this size, but it was a card table. And one of the legs was held together with duct tape. And he said, are you kidding me? This is where I'm going to ask for some money. And it just, yeah, no, it's very different. <laughs> That's great. So can you give us a little bit of a sense of your path um, and, and what led you to join what back then was a brand new firm? Um, it was accidental. I, I had been... Uh, uh, on garden leave from a firm I had sold. Uh, I, I did turnarounds and I came here because I knew I knew one of the, uh, the people that had started the firm. And it was really just to stay here for a few months and then find another firm and go off and do something else. And I was sort of like the proverbial bad penny. I just, I never left uh, and, and liked the whole thing. I enjoyed the industry. I enjoyed the people that I worked with and it's been a great ride. So how many people were here when you joined and, and what was your role at that time? It was four people. And, you know, at that time you did sort of everything. I did legal stuff. I did diligence stuff, investment stuff, client stuff. You, you just sort of did everything. There, was, there were no defined roles. Everyone pitched in for everything. I, I typed. I ran and got stuff at the stationery store. You just did everything. Wow. And... Did we did we work for just a single client back then, or were you involved in? There there were a couple of clients, okay. um, but you know it was very small. The, the the clients that really put us on the map, if you will, were were Calpers, uh, New York Common, and State of Idaho. Those were those were, as I recall, the the three that really became kind of the the cornerstone of the firm. 
And and how did Hamilton Lane kind of fit in the private equity ecosystem back then? Well, at that point, you know, we were just consultants. Um, we didn't we didn't do any money management. It was just a really a, a firm that said private equity is just starting. It, it, it's it's hard to imagine what the industry was like then compared to what it is now. Now it's a it, everybody knows private equity. Everybody knows everything about um, where it is and how big it is. Then it it was kind of an unknown weird thing that some pension funds were doing. And our thought was they they might need help. We might be able to consult and help them do figure out what they wanted to invest in. Um, and that's really how we started. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, was there a inflection point where in those early days where you were like, wow, we're on to something and we're pretty good at this. Why don't we start managing money? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess there was. In, in the lore of Hamilton Lane, the way we tell it now, we, we were brilliant and foresaw that people were going to use separate accounts and the industry was going to boom. And it was nothing like that. It was really more, what works? What do the clients want? What can we figure out that, that they are looking to do? And we became separate account managers because a couple of clients, particularly one, New York, particularly said to us, hey, we can't do these small funds. It's just too much time, brain damage. How about we set up a separate account? And we said, we can do that. We can manage that money. And the rest is history. The industry sort of went to separate accounts. Everybody wanted to do customized um, solutions. It wasn't that we foresaw the whole thing. It was that, look, it, I think it's what we do pretty well. We listen to clients and say, what does the market want? What does it need? What is it looking for? And we're pretty adaptable. We always have been. And, and that's, that's the history of how we went into the management part of the business. And what about transactions? When did we start doing co-investments? It was around the same time um, because part of the, part of the mandate uh, with New York and then with, with CalPERS was let's do transactions as part of this smaller market stuff. Mm, and it, it evolved from there. Um, they, they were really seen, again, you sort of look at it and, and the history is, well, we saw that we were good at transactions. No, it was really, what, what can we do to fill out these portfolios? What can we do to have risk and, and investment exposures that you don't have in other places? And it just evolved naturally from there. And so, okay, so we're humming along. <laughs> and then in 2001, you became CEO. Um, how did that sort of happen? Was this was this a natural journey for you? Were you taking on more leadership? No, it, it was. I mean, someone called me the accidental CEO, which which I think is probably <laughs> pretty accurate. Um, I never, I never thought I'd be CEO. I never thought of being CEO, and we didn't really, because again, we were small enough where everybody sort of did everything. Um, but we got to that point around 2000 where we thought, you know, we ought to be structured like a real company. We ought to be structured like adults, and and in many companies adult companies, they have CEOs, they have people that actually are supposed to be filling that role. And my guess is everyone looked around the table and said, I don't want to do it. And I forgot to say that, but it, it, it naturally evolved. It seems like it, I don't think there was a point in time where someone said, oh, you are going to be CEO because you're really great CEO material. Um, I don't think anyone ever said that, um, but it really became a, a question of let's structure ourselves like a real company. And, and you had been involved so much with the clients. That was really your strength, right? Is, is that I came out of the client yeah. side. I think people see me as, as having come out of the investment side. And I certainly did a lot of that. But, but really, for me, I view myself as a client person. That, that's what I've been first and foremost. Um, the investment part was a, a key part of being a client person. But no, I've always been around the client side. So then in 2004, we went through 
sort of a management buyout, right? And our chairman, Hartley Rogers, came in along with a few others. Um, I guess, one, how did that partnership come together? And, um, you know, did you feel like that was a, a good time for you to sort of start to put your own stamp on the organization and um, maybe, you know, reframe us going forward? Yeah, I think what, what happened at that point, I, I think it was, it was 03, I think, where what we decided at that point was you, you sort of had a difference, a different path within the firm. There were, there were some people that, that wanted to keep it a smaller firm, if you will, and not, I'll call it, have equity for everyone. To, and there was a part of the firm that wanted to be more institutional. And I was sort of on the institutional side in terms of saying, let's make this, let's make this a firm that wants to grow and bring in more people and do all of that. Um, and that's really where the buyout came from. Hartley, I had met really through a relationship with Jim Coulter and TPG. We had been looking at doing something together, ironically, on the secondary side. And that, that sort of didn't happen. The market moved away from the concept we were having. But Hartley and I had spent a lot of time talking, and we sort of said, we could do this together and move this firm forward. And so we arranged the buyout, and again, the rest is history. I feel like I've said that twice now. <laughs> <It just seems, laughs> that's good. Always seems to be history. Um, and what about culture? I mean, that's something that you've been a big proponent of. It's, it's hard to get it right, and, and some firms never do. Um, was this something that you had thought deeply about then, or was this something that naturally evolved because of the leadership style at the firm at that I, time? I don't know. That's a good question. I, I think culture is hugely important. I don't think there is one right culture, but I think that you have to have a culture and you have to stay true to it. Um, people know when you're not being true to your culture, whatever that is. And so I think that for for me... The idea of having a firm where, and you've heard me say this, I hate shows like The Office. I, I, I hate them because what they engender is this view that companies are bad, that work is horrible, that the work environment sucks. And to me, I want to be at a place where people enjoy the people they work with, they feel respected. You may not always get everything you want, but that environment, I think, matters. And so that was a part of the culture that I always wanted to have. And people around me at Hamilton Lane always believed in that. That's the culture we have. But I don't, I don't know how that develops. I, I really don't. I remember talking to Griff Sexton, who is, is one of our, uh, uh, on our board, who came in during the buyout, the management buyout. He was with Morgan Stanley when they became big and they went through their, their growth phase. And I remember telling him about culture and how important it was and all that. And he said to me, Mario, it's a load of crap. And I'm thinking, <laughs> rut row, that doesn't sound like a, a, an endorsement. He said, I'll tell you what culture is. Culture is people watching the top of the firm and everything you do and everything you say, because they look at that and go, that's how to be successful at the firm. And I'm going to copy that. That's culture. And I think he's right. I think it is watching the people around you, especially your managers, your boss, whatever it is, and saying, that's, that's what works. And if those people create the kind of culture that I was talking about, then it becomes something that everyone believes in. Um, but, you know, you do one thing that is counter to that culture and people hear that, see that, and then they go, that's BS. It's not true. Right. They say culture eats uh, strategy for breakfast. <laughs> oh, I think that's right. I think you can have you can have the right strategy um, and have a bad culture, wrong culture, and you won't succeed. 
you can have, and we've done it many times, you can have the wrong strategy <laughs> and your culture will get you through. I, I completely agree with that premise. And what about the client-centric approach? That's sort of always been deeply rooted. I mean, I've been here 15 years and that was sort of the mantra. Was that, again, from, from because you came from the client side of the house? Or? Probably, um, but I think, the, I think that was kind of the firm even, I think that part of that is the consulting roots. Hmm. If you're a consultant, you always have to be listening to clients. It's, it's, it's second nature. Whereas I think a lot of investment firms believe that we're investors, we tell the clients they don't matter. Um, and so I think there is a difference in terms of how you think about stuff. And so the client-centric nature of the firm has, has always been part of, I think, part of why we've been successful. I remember a client saying to me, this was years ago, but it was one of the biggest compliments I've ever gotten uh, in, in terms of clients telling us something. He said, here's the difference between Hamilton Wayne and all my other money managers. Um, I never worry that the advice you're giving me or what you're doing is intended to benefit you first and not me. And I don't believe that about my other managers. And I thought, one, that's a sad statement about other managers, but two, that's what you want to hear. We are in this business to make money. This is not a nonprofit, but you want clients to look at you and say, you're doing this first and foremost for me. And that, that statement has always stuck with me. That's great. So I want to switch gears here for a second and talk about uh, something that has become a bit of a legend, which is the Hamilton Lane market overview. Um, today, it's sort of an industry gold standard. It's award-winning. Uh, I've heard of folks trying to copy it. In fact, one GP told me a, a firm came at them and said, we can replicate what Hamilton Lane does for you. Um, and that didn't go so well. So can you tell me a little bit, you know, how did it start? How did the process evolve? Like, what drove the interest in the market overview? God, I, I mean, when you when you think of what it was first done, and I don't remember the year, probably two thousand. I mean, it was it was probably close to twenty years ago at this point. It was first designed as a part of what was then our co investment fund, and when we would do our annual meeting for the co investment fund, we would do a little piece of it that was the market overview. And I, I think I look back a year or two ago at the original one, I think it was like 10 pages. I mean, it, was, it, was, it was hilarious. You know, it had interest rates are going up or down or whatever we said at that. I mean, it was just so rudimentary. And then it, it as you said, it, it has taken on a life of its own and it's become, I, I do think it has become the industry standard. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a remarkable document at this point and a remarkable presentation and just the whole thing is, is way beyond what it started as. And, and does the market overview, does it come from your head <laughs> or like today? Where does it come from? Who, who's leading it and, and how, do, how does it come together? Um, it starts, I, I usually send an outline around, it's, it's almost nine months before we actually produce it. So really a, a, a rudimentary outline of here are the pieces that in my mind anyway, I think we should look at. Here's the theme, which has become important, but then it, it, it's an overstatement to say it comes from, from my head. What happens at that point is people say, well, this idea might work, this idea might not work. And then it goes really to, to Brian Jenkins in our, in our research area who says, here's, what, here's the data we have. Because at the end of the day, the whole thesis of this is we have the data, we should share it. People need to know what's going on in this industry. This is an anecdotal asset class. Everyone likes to talk about their last deal, their last fund. It's always successful. You never know what the hell is going on. Our view is, if you got the data, 
let's look at it the way people look at public markets. So the Brian and his team come back with, we have data around this that we can put together and here's what it says. And you know, then it begins to evolve from there. You, you take things out that you don't have enough data on, you put things in that, that are, is of interest in the market. And it's a huge effort. There's probably 10 people that are spending nine months working a lot on this. Brian's our head of research, and, and he's fantastic, he and, he and his team. Uh, I have a, a question, though, about there's something else to the element of the market overview, which is, I don't know if humor is the right word or candor or something. There's always rock quotes and strange, you know, <laughs> cartoons. Where does that come from? Do you, like, write those down as you're reading things every day? I mean, how do you remember those? Those are, those? unfortunately, largely mine, which probably <laughs> says, says stuff about me you don't want to know. But... Um, uh, no, I mean, I do some of it. Like the quotes I, I do over the course of the years, I'll, I'll be reading something and it'll strike me as interesting and I'll write it down. But then when when it comes time to put the document together, whether it's the slideshow or the book itself, I, I just go underground for some period of time and just let things flow, if you will, and they come out. And then, and, and people... There, there is, in particular, Kristen Williamson who, who edits, because if you saw the raw product, you would go, oh my God, don't let this person write anything. <laughs> um, so there are people that then provide feedback and say, this has gone too far, or we need to explore this a little more. Interesting. Do you have like a favorite analysis you, that we've done over the years? A favorite one? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I thought we did. I thought we've done some some really good things on some of the myths. I mean, around private equity, when people go large outperforms small or small outperforms large. I think we've done a very good job in dealing with with some of those myths. I thought we did a really good job um, when we did sort of the zombie funds. I thought those were <laughs> those were some good analyses. Um, and I guess to me, it, it's good because you get a lot of feedback that says, oh, you're crazy or you're wrong or this can't be correct. It's those kinds of things that, that I find. Or oh, we did one where, you know, there's the myth in private equity that it's just, it's just levered public markets. And so we've done some work on that and it, people, people went nuts and said, that can't be right. It's just levered private equity. I know it just because I feel it rather than I can use any data on it. So yeah, That's there's some one. things we've That's done that one. are fun. I've used that many a time. Yeah. My favorite is actually when we did, um, we created a robot based off of the name of the firm. So if your name started with, uh, you know, a rock or yeah, a river right. or, right. um, and, and what we, or a Greek god or something, right? <laughs> um, and what we found was people who named the firm after themselves underperform. Underperform. <laughs> it, they, Underperformed. And uh, yeah, you're right. And and people get mad about that and they go, well, that can't be right. I know. I know. All right. So I'm going to fast forward again. Hamilton Lane, you know, went went public a few years ago, about five years ago. Um, And at that time, you know, everyone within the firm became an owner. Um, But what was the premise behind taking a company that is so focused on private markets uh, public? I mean, a few things. One, we had given equity generally. Uh, we were a big equity-oriented firm because, again, to that culture piece, it, I, I believe that if people own a piece of the firm, uh, they will be looking out for the overall interest of the firm, not just their piece. And so I think it, it creates a, a good firm and client experience. Um, but once so many people own equity, they sort of look at you and go, well, what do I do with this equity? It's all great to have, but what do I do with it? How do I, how do I realize the value of what, what I've spent my life working on? Um, and equally important, p- 
people then begin to think you're going to sell the firm. You're going to sell to some bigger competitor or someone in the asset management business. And we didn't want to do that. And so we had seen a couple of other firms go public in our industry. And while it, you know, do you want to go public in an ideal world? You've got to begin to think about those other factors. And so going public became an interesting um, option to, to deal with those issues. The other thing about going public is we also saw that it, it had huge brand recognition. Um, once you were public, people thought you were legitimate. You're not just this sort of backwater firm that no one's ever heard of or knows anything about. And so we went public and it's been a, it's been a very good experience. The stock price has done well, so everyone thinks you're a genius. And um, you it control really, all of that, right? Oh, you know, yeah. You know, we, we know exactly what the stock price is going to do. Um, and it hasn't, everyone asks all the time, you know, how has it changed how you operate? And it, it really has not. Um, we went out as a controlled company. So we still, the management group, the employees still have control of the company. And it, it simply hasn't been a factor in terms of how we operate. No. And people have now copied. <laughs> Yeah. For lack of a better word. Oh, no. I mean, uh, now, so now the, now trend, the question right? is, why haven't you gone public um, mm, for many, many of the competitors rather than why are you public? Interesting. So it's been five years now. Do you think we've settled into a, a comfortable spot being in the in the public spotlight? And is there anything you've learned during this time period that like surprised you, maybe good or bad? I think we are in a comfortable spot. I think it, it, it is now everyone knows we're public and we don't. I, I just spend no time with clients explaining <clears throat> why we are, or why we're not, or anything like that. It, it's just, it's. I think people now accept that part of being a firm like us is you choose to go public. Um, I, there hasn't been too much. I, I guess the, the one thing that does that has surprised me is the perception of you and what you're doing relative to the stock price. So when the stock price is going up, everyone thinks you are really smart. Like, what are you doing that's so brilliant? And when the stock price is going down, everyone looks at you and goes, well, what's wrong? What's happening that's, that's, what's happening wrong? And the reality is neither is true. You're sort of doing what you're doing and the stock price is, is influenced by things that, that aren't a function of what's going on at the company. It's the market's perception of the industry, of the world. That, that part has surprised me that, um, that people do think of you better or worse depending on your stock price. It's funny. I I never look at the stock price. Yeah. I just don't. Um, but I know when it's doing well or not because uh, my family texts me. See, that's the thing. And all of a sudden, it 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 matters. I I spend less time looking at the stock price than people probably think I do. It it it's nothing I can control. Um, the things I can control, you sort of work on. But yeah. So I, I of course want to talk about the firm today. But before I do that, I would be remiss not to talk about um, the last three years and and what we've been through as you know we've come sort of the through the pandemic. Um, you know, at the time when it hit, you were leading a fifteen sixteen global office company, um, and the wave hit. Um, so were there things that you, as a CEO, sort of pulled, you know, from a playbook and how to manage in crisis? I know that we had to think about it from both a client perspective and an employee perspective, but what did you draw on at that time to really, you know, keep everyone calm, keep everyone kind of business as usual, right? Yeah, part of it, part of it was drawing on what happened in 07, 08 um, in the great financial crisis, which was a very different, the first month of the pandemic felt a little bit like that, um, but then it was very, very different. And, but drawing on that, what, what we all learned in that, and I certainly felt like I learned, is you can't communicate enough. Certainly with clients, 
um, and, and we can talk about internally. It was a little different in the great financial crisis. Internally, you could communicate because you were kind of in the hallways together. Um, I can remember during the great financial crisis, we had a, a TV in the lobby and we'd all gather around the TV watching things happening because, you know, markets were going down a million points a day. Um, but that part of it was, I, I remember thinking, oh, you just need to over communicate. You need to be talking to people way more than you think you should be or want to be. Um, so that certainly I drew from the 07, 08 experience. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I remember that day where we had to test all of the technology and made sure it worked around the globe. And when it did, we were all like high-fiving, like, yeah. we can do this, guys. Yeah. We got this. We got this. And, and remember, that was literally the day before we all went remote. Yeah. And we had yeah. no idea how long. I remember someone asking me, this shows how smart I am, when the day that we announced that we were going remote, we were going out of the office um, for the next week, someone said, do you think this will last a, a week or two? And I said, I, I think this could go a month. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I, was, I was only off by, you know, what? two years. Yeah, that's great. So I'm going to use another quote here from Napoleon, um, which is the role of a leader is to define reality and give hope. And I say that because, you know, one of the one of the things you did during the crisis or not the crisis, excuse me, the pandemic was that you wrote these market updates. This is not the market overview. These are these market updates. Um, that were, you know, so important to people that you wrote weekly for a long time through it. And um, tell me if I get this wrong, but I think the general flow was, and they evolved, something about music, usually tied to the, the number of the right. update, uh, COVID-19 updates, um, the country scorecards, the, an update on the public markets, then you went into the private markets and did the investment report card. Then there was like a story with a lesson <laughs> and, a, and a conclusion, right? With some, some kind of human advice. How did that come about in your head? How did it, how did it evolve? And, and what was important to, you know, the starting of that? Yeah, the starting, it really started as uh, obviously something much smaller than that. It started as first that point of learning the lesson and to the, the, the Napoleon thing of, because now we were remote we were not together to that point i made earlier about you watch your your leaders no one could watch anyone on zoom i mean you can but you're not really very different experience so what i tried to do in the early ones and i was getting all sorts of misinformation people were telling me well you know this virus does x and i was like it doesn't do x i mean cnn may say it does x but that's not true and so it really started as an internal uh, device to get people grounded in the same place here are the facts that we know. And to your point of hope, this isn't the end of the world. Like, it's okay. We're going to get through this. Um, and really to, to be there where I'm not in the hallways, to just people get us all in the same place. That was the original point of the updates. Then, as this seemed to stretch on into infinity, it, it became something that I did want to do weekly to make sure I stayed in contact um, and people had that place they could look. And then someone said, we ought to send this more broadly because it, it may have more application than just internal Hamilton Lane. And once that started to happen, I thought, well, I need to expand it. I need to make it something more than just an internal piece. And then, you know, I'm as affected by being remote as anyone else. It became, I'm in my basement alone, which is not a place anyone wants to be, especially if you're me. And 
I sort of thought I can, I'm just going to go and let people laugh, get mad, enjoy whatever. The music was interesting because as, as you know, we love music at Hamilton Lane. It's a core part of who we are. And the music became interesting because it was the most commented on piece of every, every update I did. And what's interesting is we can't agree or have a civil conversation on anything in life anymore. Anything. It's all polarized. It's all anger. It's all we can't talk about it, except music. People disagreed vehemently with the stuff I wrote. When I said the Grateful Dead suck, people were like, you don't know music. You don't know anything. You like Zeppelin. They're trash. But you could have these conversations and it didn't matter. It's like a great unifying element. It was remarkable to me how as much as people disagreed on the music, it was a wonderful conversation and you could go back and forth in a way that you just can't do with anything else. So the music was, was a part that I, I personally enjoyed a lot and I feel like that's what people liked a lot and it humanized it. Because again, remember, we're all isolated. We're all somewhere where we wish we could be in contact with people and it, it just created a, a community feeling that I thought was, was important. I think that's right. I heard a story that Steve Schwartzman at Blackstone said to his employees at one point, like, if you aren't reading these, you should be, because there was so much data and information in there. And, and I, again, I don't know where you pulled that from, the dark web of the universe, but it was like a North Star for us. So I think it was really important that, that those were out there. Um, and I'm sure you got a lot of pushback. I, I think at some point someone said we could lose clients because of the things you were saying. I mean, it did, yeah, didn't no, stop was, you. <laughs> no, it, it, didn't, it didn't. We didn't lose um, any clients, at least. We didn't. But no, I got, I mean, on, on the political side, um, and I said that in the, in the last update I did, on the political side, I got some really uh, negative comments. You know, people saying, you don't know what you're talking about. You, you, sh you need to stop writing these. Um, the political side became really intense. People were very angry about that. Some people, not obviously not, not the majority of people, but some people were really upset about it. And that's what I was saying about music. Upset in a way where, and they said, I refuse to read anymore, mm -hmm. which I think is a very dangerous place to go for anybody. Um, you can disagree with stuff. I'll, I'll use music again. People disagreed with it, but they kept reading it. And then they gave me their points back, which I would then answer, which is what dialogue should be about. So to me, that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to present facts as best I could and let people draw conclusions. People clearly knew where I was coming from on some stuff, but whether you agreed with it or not, at least the facts I tried to present in a way where here's what's going on with COVID, here's what's going on in the markets, and this is, put it in some perspective. No, I mean, you defined it for people, you gave it context, um, you addressed, you know, people's feelings and, and, and how they should be thinking about you know, just remaining calm during during such a difficult time. And you made up a few characters along the way uh, to, to poke fun at a few topics and people, and that was enjoyable too. So Yeah, including me. I mean, <laughs> right. I, yeah, yeah. Right, absolutely. Um, okay, so I guess I just want to maybe finish up here um, with, with a few questions on sort of the future. Where do you see both the market and Hamilton Lane in five years? Where, where is the puck going on both? I, I've said this in uh, lately, and, and people think think I'm on drugs or that I'm still writing the updates um, and and <laughs> delusional. I I and it's not just because we're in this industry. I think private markets will continue to grow. I think they will they will expand both in size and in the number of people that are investing in them. I think in five ten years, 
people will have close to half their assets in private markets, not just private equity, but private credit, private real estate infrastructure. Um, it just it, it performs better just for the reasons we all know. I won't get into the, the market reasons. And so I think if, you're, if that is where you think the world is going, then you will grow and you have to grow and you have to figure out where you can provide that kind of investment return and service to clients and people. And so I think that's what we'll do. I don't see any grand changes in, you know, we're going to become public equity people. Um, there's, there's enough opportunity in the private spaces for us to grow. We'll just have to figure out, as I said, where we can do it best. But I, I think the, the markets will, will help us. Do you think, like, the, the, real, the perception maybe, not, not the reality, is that big equals bad for firms? Like, does that make you nervous about the growth? I mean, some of the biggest asset managers in the world are under a lot of scrutiny, a lot of pressure nowadays. Oh, I, I think that, that the whole industry will face more scrutiny. Um, it, it just, it has to. You, you become such a big part of everyone's life in terms of companies you own, in terms of companies you influence. Um, I don't think big is necessarily bad. So does, do people view Apple as bad? No, I think people view Apple as a great company with great products and they like, I think, again, it goes to that culture point. You can become big and everyone hates you and should hate you. Um, I'll use Facebook. Everyone always takes shots at Facebook. And whether they're bad or not, it doesn't really matter. People view them as, oh my gosh, we have to worry about Facebook. They don't have that view about Apple. So I think it is, it is incumbent on us as Hamilton Lane and us as part of an industry to, to be culturally good, to not have that reputation, to not project that image. That, that's on us. That's on us again, certainly as an industry, but as a company. In our next um, show, we're going to be talking about the rise of the retail investor. What, what is your view on that space and, and how, you know, what does, what does it mean for both the individual investor but also the institutional investor. Well, I, I think I think there it'll be a couple of things. There will be more retail investing in private markets. Will it be the you know the the mom and pop investing in private markets? Probably not anytime soon. I think the structures have to change. They will. They'll evolve. They have in every other part of the asset management industry. Will it be a year? Will it be five years? I don't know. But structures will evolve. There will be more liquidity. There will be more transparency. When we talk about data, the only way it will expand into the retail in a meaningful way is if people use more data um, and become more transparent. So that will happen. How? I don't know. Will we be at the forefront of it? I hope so. I think we certainly have that as part of our, our ethos. Um, so I, I do think that that will be a reality. How that affects the institutional world, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I suspect that there will be cases where institutions will not have as easy an access route because there will be so much retail money coming in. But, you know, other asset classes have solved this problem. It hasn't been a big issue. You don't see, you don't see institutions versus retail in any other part of, of the asset management industry. And I, I don't think there'll be, there'll be huge issues on the private equity side or private market side either. So last question. I know you have a passion for language and, and literature and culture, music, obviously. Would you ever consider writing a book someday on your journey? <laughs> no, I would never write it on my journey. Um, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't know that my 
I don't think my journey is interesting enough for a, for a book. People have asked me if I'd write a book about private equity and its journey and, and maybe, but I actually prefer fiction to nonfiction. So maybe I'd write a fiction book that is a, a thinly veiled version of, of what's going on in private equity in my life, but it would be so thinly veiled that the lawyers would tell me I can't write it. <laughs> well, being humble in, in private equity is certainly tough and it's a competitive advantage and, and you do it well. So um, thank, thank you. you for joining us today. This has been great. Hopefully you'll come back soon. We can talk more more macro, but uh, Love thank to. you. Love to. Thanks. Thanks to our listeners. Look out for the next episode to learn about the rise of the retail investor. Don't forget to like and subscribe to get all the latest updates from our show. Until next time, I'm Katie Moore, and this is Private Markets Made Human.